And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Now, on the show today, I'm really excited to welcome my guest, Patty Clark, coming to me all the way from New Zealand. Author Patty Clark has been described as a cross between Elizabeth Gilbert and Julia Cameron. Her book, This Way Up, Seven Tools for Unleashing Your Creative Self and Transforming Your Life, was the winner of the prestigious International Excellence Best Self-Help Book of the Year in 2017. Patty is an accomplished speaker and workshop leader, sharing her knowledge and wisdom with others for more than 30 years in several countries. Patty has been featured on TVNZ's Breakfast Show and numerous radio shows and podcasts. Her work has been featured in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, Thrive Global, and The Mindful Word. Patty, welcome to the Bubble Hour. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much. Jean. I'm really happy to be here. I've been listening to you for a long time, and it's just awesome to actually be talking to you. Well, you as well. I've been enjoying your book, and we've been, you know, both of us are sort of in, in the sober cyber sphere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we've been, we've been uh, circling each other's uh, orbits for, for a while now, and it's really great that we were able to connect. I want to start today by having our listeners get to know you. So let's start by hearing your story. Okay. All right. Um, well, my story starts all the way back, as, this, as is similar to a lot of us. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic, chaotic family, um, and drinking was the norm when I grew up. I, I remember really well on holidays, Christmas, etc., that booze was always bought first, and everything else came later. Um, so my mother was the alcohol was the identified alcoholic. My father was the quote unquote functional alcoholic, um, and it was just uh, alcohol featured constantly. Uh, my dad ended up leaving uh, my mom uh, when I was in the sixth grade. When I was twelve, he left just before Christmas, the day before Christmas Eve, and his final words as he departed were, "Think about Jim Beam." for a while, well, with my sister and I standing in the kitchen crying. It was, yeah, a pretty horrible time. Um, and then my sister and I sat and talked, and she said, well, maybe this will, you know, maybe mom was drinking because of dad, so maybe she'll stop, you know, and so we had this sort of magical thinking. Um, but without my dad there, her drinking just progressed, and, um, and it got worse. And I remember the the next day after Dad left, um, she said, "You can't tell anybody. This is too this is too horrible that your father's left. So you can't tell anyone." So sort of laying on the shame. So our our house was just this shame filled place. So we didn't invite people home because then they'd see Dad wasn't there or they'd see my mother drunk. Um, it was it was gloomy. I, I don't have great memories of my childhood, as you can probably probably here. Um, and then when I was 16, my mother died of alcoholism. 
um, at that point, I was already um, drinking solidly myself. And with my father gone, my sister was in college, and I was drinking and getting high uh, just constantly. The, the saving grace for me, Jean, was that I desperately wanted to get out of the um, suburban town I was raised in, and I saw... Um, college as a door out. And so I had enough wherewithal to keep my grades up. And I was lucky enough that school came relatively easy to me. Um, and so I was able to uh, get out and go to university. And that was a real saving grace for me because um, uh, most of my friends that I was drinking and using with, well, not most of them, but a lot of them were getting pregnant young and were um, on a real kind of dead end road. I was, you know, I was using, I grew up in the Bay Area near San Francisco. And so there were a lot of drugs in the 60s and 70s, needless to say. So I was doing a lot of acid. I was doing a lot of um, sort of whatever came. I remember one time at a party smoking elephant tranquilizer be just because someone said, oh, this is cool and passed it to me. So I did it. And I was basically paralyzed on a floor for, I don't know, how, I don't know how long it was. But, you know, that kind of thing that I thought was sort of cool and just a nihilist, basically. Um, and, and just had a real dark view of stuff. <laughs> um, I ended up, um, after I finished university, um, using a lot, but managing to, to, to stay um, in university and pass. Um, I ended up in Alaska, and the reason I ended up in Alaska is because I had heard that there was a lot of partying, and there were ten men to every woman, and that was my uh, that was my decision. Like, oh, cool! And I got a job as a bartender. My first uh, my first job that I tr that I looked for on my first day, and I started working in the Red Dog Saloon in Juneau, Alaska, um, bartending. So a real kid in the candy shop. There was heaps of cocaine. There was um, a lot of money flowing around. A really, really unhealthy environment, to say the least. To say the least. And I was, um, and I knew I was killing myself. Gene, it, it, it wasn't like I, um, it wasn't like I was in denial about it. I was really aware that um, I looked horrible. I had bags under my eyes. I wasn't sleeping well. I was staying up all night. But it was this sort of destructive pattern I was on, and I really didn't know how to get out. Um, my boyfriend then, my present husband, we ended up staying together. Um, wrote to me from Australia and asked me to meet him in Bali while, he, um, while I was living in Alaska. And I had just been offered a job teaching in Alaska, and there was a condominium for sale next door to a woman I was teaching with. And um, I was teaching during the day and bartending and drinking at night. So I was really um, in a real... Yeah, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't. I wasn't healthy, um, and I got this letter. And I remember it was a real sliding doors moment, where I looked at my life and I thought, I can stay on this path. I was earning really good money. I was um, partying a lot, and I knew it was destructive. Or I can go to Bali and meet up with Jeff and with with a very unknown uh, future. <laughs> Um, of, of what I was going to do, etc. And I really gave myself a talking to. It was, I didn't realize it at the time. Well, I sort of realized it. I sort of realized I was at a crossroads, but I didn't realize how important a decision it was. Anyway, I went to Bali 
and I think it saved my life. Um, Jeff, for some reason, I, I you know, as destructive and as uh, much of an addict, because I'm an insane addict, um, as much of an addict as I am, I ended up with a man who's not a user, and uh, he doesn't use alcohol, he doesn't use drugs, and um, somehow we, <laughs> we managed to survive. We're about to celebrate 30 years of marriage. Um, Congratulations. Thank you, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a milestone, especially considering our backgrounds. Anyway, we traveled for about four years, and I didn't, I didn't use or, or drink much when we were traveling, since Jeff didn't. I drank a bit, but not insanely. I was in Japan teaching for a while, and that's a big drinking culture, and I drank quite a bit, but I managed to, to keep a job and, and be okay. We came back to the States so that Jeff could um, finish his bachelor's, and um, I immediately got into drinking again, and I realized that, oh, God, I'm in a, this is a really scary, it, it was scary how quickly it progressed. And another big turning point was, you know, it's interesting in retrospect, sort of looking back and realizing these huge life decisions that, that are absolutely transformational. Um, this woman that I met in, I was in Ashland, Oregon. This woman I met in Ashland said, oh, you should go to my um, astrologist. She's amazing. And I thought, oh, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. This was just before my 30th birthday. And I, um, I went to her astrologist and she did my chart. And she said, now this area is very interesting. It looks like a lot of addiction in that area. Do you have addiction in your family? And I said, oh, yeah, I've got a lot of addiction. And I told her, you know, my, my mother died of alcoholism. And she said, yeah, but, and she sort of pointed, yeah, but see how it branches out over here? Is there more than that? And I said, well, yeah, my dad's still alive. But he's a quote unquote functioning alcoholic, but you know, he's, he's also, he's also an alcoholic. And she said, yeah, but look at how this and this. And I said, well, my sister is actually in recovery because my sister had gotten um, sober the year before. And I said, oh, my sister's actually in recovery and she's, um, and she's not drinking anymore, but she's, she used to drink a lot too. And she just stopped and looked me straight in the eye and said, and said, Patty, look at this. Are you an alcoholic? And I just burst into tears. It was so confrontational, and I was not expecting it at all from an astrologist. And, um, and I had just been thinking about how much I had started drinking again. Um, sort of note to, to listeners, if you haven't heard this one before, um, people who aren't alcoholics or addicts don't wonder if they're alcoholics or addicts. People that are normal drinkers don't think, hmm, I wonder if I'm an addict. It's only us addicts and alcoholics that wonder that. And I had just been wondering it. And with that confrontation, um, I just went, holy shit. I burst into tears. Jeff and I ended up um, moving to Arizona the next day, actually that day, later that day. And we moved to Arizona and moved to Tucson. It was two days before my 30th birthday. And um, I went to my first um, AA meeting there. And that was 1988. And it was a woman's meeting. And thank God, it was the most amazing place. And this will also feature importantly later. I felt so at home. I felt so embraced. I felt so loved. And these women were speaking my language. They had a candle in the middle. They were sitting around talking about feelings. They were talking about their backgrounds that I could relate to. And it was like, oh, my God, I'm home. I'm home. And it was amazing. Um, and thank God I found them first. I found a sponsor that I just adored. 
And we talked about um, about our feelings. We talked about emotional sobriety. We talked about things that were close to my heart. And my sponsor, you know, immediately had me starting working the steps, but she did it with love, with grace. Um, it was beautiful. And my first year, I just really, really submerged myself in the program. <clears throat> my second year, I started branching out and doing more around codependence and read a lot of books and take a sip of tea, excuse me. And, um, and with all the books I was reading, I was just eating it up. And then um, Jeff and I decided to get married, which was lovely. It was a lovely marriage. And we um, got a job in Africa, in Togo, West Africa. And it sort of pulled me away from my home group, but but I stayed in contact with them and didn't drink. Came back to Arizona, went back to the same group, felt fully immersed, immersed, immersed in their love. And then in um, 1992, so four years later, we moved to New Zealand. And we moved to a small town in New Zealand. Um, and I started going to the meetings here. And the meetings here were, and I'm not blaming them. I'm, I really want to make this clear. This is in no way blaming anyone else in the program or anything. But I didn't feel as safe, as seen, or as loved as I had. And I just, I started to feel alienated in the rooms. They were mostly old men. They were mostly big book thumpers. They were mostly saying, when I'd start talking about feelings that were coming up, because at this point I'm five years sober and I had a lot of emotions coming up and there was a lot of, you know, painful stuff that was, that was existing in life as I was dealing with life on life's terms without anything to numb it. And the answer in the rooms were, just don't pick up, don't drink, and you'll be fine. And it was so cold. I, I didn't feel held. I didn't feel seen. And I started um, moving away from from the rooms. Um, I stayed sober until 2000, um, until the year 2000. And mostly that was because I had had two kids and I was not going to be my mother. And so I was sober. I stayed sober through all of the pregnancies, through breastfeeding, through them in playgroup, and, and I was really there for them. But by the year 2000, I was 12 years sober. They were in school, and I felt like I really understood. I'm putting quote marks around that, but you guys can't see me. I really understood um, the program and, quote, unquote, understood my drinking patterns, and I could handle it. And so I stepped away. Um, and the, the other piece of that was the real social scene here in this small town in New Zealand was after school, all the kids got together at one of the kids' houses and the mother sat on the deck and drank wine. And that was the social circle I was in. And I was always the one drinking soda water. And I finally thought, you know what? Screw it. I'm, I, I can handle this. I know how. So in 2000, I started, um, drinking again. And I, it was in retrospect, it's funny. My, my dealing with myself. Okay, Patty, you can have one glass of wine after school with the mothers, but no more. But on a weekend, you can have two beers at the pizza parlor, but, or at the pizza parties, but no more. Now, if it's a birthday or if it's this, you can have three glasses of wine. But I mean, I had this, this huge, you know, agreement patterned with myself as I was navigating my way through drinking again. It's, it's funny in retrospect in retrospect, tragic at the time. But 
say la vie. Um, needless to say, it started spinning out of control, and pretty soon I was hiding how much I was drinking. I was making sure that bottles of wine were at the bottom of recycling so that Jeff couldn't see how much I was drinking. Um, the kids started saying things like, um, you know, Mommy, I don't like it when you slur your words, that kind of thing that's just I swore I was never going to do after having an alcoholic mother. And it was horrible, really, really horrible. Um, and I would love to say that it didn't take me long, but it took me 12 years being out um, drinking again. Um, and I, now I'm lying. It took 14 years because um, in 2014, um, I started writing my book that, that you mentioned earlier, Jean, um, This Way Up. And as I was writing it, the, the protagonist has an, a car accident because she's drunk driving, and I'm looking at this and thinking, Patty, what are you doing? <laughs> and while I'm writing it, just thinking, this is not, this does not feel in integrity to still be drinking at all. And I, I was meditating and journaling, which I do a lot of, I journal a lot. And I was meditating and just saying, you know, this feels out of integrity. And I just got this huge, huge hit that in order to be my best self, I could not drink anymore. And, and the thing that was really different about it this time was that I was doing it for me. The first time I got sober, I was getting sober to hang on to Jeff because Jeff had said he didn't like me drinking and I could see him starting to pull away from me. I was also not drinking because I didn't want to be my mother and I wanted to be um, a, a good mother for my sons, for my eventual children. I didn't know there would be two sons. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do it for all of these external reasons. Whereas in 2014, I was taking a hard look at my life and, um, and I was saying, you know what, I, I, I don't want to drink from me. I want to be the best version of me. And so I stopped drinking in um, 2014. I'm, I'm about to celebrate my fifth year sober again. Um, and, and it feels great. Um, one, of, uh, one of my all-time favorite books is the book by Julia Cameron called The Artist's Way. And she's also um, sober. Um, and that's the other thing I realized is that all of these women that I look up to and admire are sober. And I didn't necessarily know that, but Julia Cameron, The Artist's Way, which was so influential for me, and she's sober. She's been sober for so many years. Brene Brown is 23 years sober. Annie Lamott is, um, I don't know, how 30-something years sober. So all of these women who I really look up to, these writers who writers and speakers that are just these amazingly strong women, are all sober. And I thought... You know, damn, Patty, if you are going to be on this journey that you want to be on, you've got to, you've got to do this for you, to, be, to straighten up for you, to be in integrity for you, to be your best self. And so I stopped drinking for me. And that has made a huge, huge difference because I am keeping this in check for me, not for anybody else. And, um, and I've just gotten so much, um, I've really connected to myself spiritually. I journal a lot. I'm just more connected to me. And that makes a huge difference. Now, the thing that was, um, interesting with this is that, you know, I, I went back to a couple of meetings and just thought, damn, you know, these meetings, these AA meetings have not changed and I don't feel at home with them. It's a small town. 
same people, you know, it's like I came back in the rooms 14 years later and a lot of the old men were even older. <laughs> um, and so I joined a couple of um, online communities, um, uh, several online forums. There are some great podcasts, yours is absolutely one of the top ones, but some other great podcasts, um, as well as some online meetings. There's intherooms.com. I'm on an email women's group. Um, so I started doing a lot of my recovery digitally and um, online, which was great. And I'm so grateful it's there. And I'm so grateful it was a possibility. But I still longed for that closeness. And so I say that it was um, that it was a miracle, a spiritual intervention. I was at a coffee shop with my son, and this woman walked in with this man. And I looked at the woman. I thought, "Wow, she looks cool. I liked her clothes. I liked her vibe." And I recognized the man from my first time in recovery. And I thought, "God, I wonder if they're still in recovery. They're my age, and they looked more." Uh, yeah, more, more my tribe. So when they sat down and had coffee, I reintroduced myself to the man. And I, and I said, um, hi, do you remember me? Blah, blah, blah. They did remember me. And then I looked at the woman and I said, um, I'm back in recovery and I am just dying for a woman's meeting. Do you know is there one? And she laughed and she stood up and hugged me and, and said, you know, um, we're just trying to start a meeting now. And um, it's an NA meeting instead of an AA meeting. But basically what we're doing is looking for addicts anonymous instead of it just being about alcohol. It's around all addictions. So we're sort of following NA, but it's around addicts anonymous because we're all suffering from so many addictions. Um, there's a wonderful, a wonderful writer and speaker named Gabor Mate. And basically what he um, in the realm of hungry ghosts, if any of you out there are, are avid readers, it's a phenomenal book. Um, and basically what he says is that, you know, we're all addicts. Look at yourself and figure out what are you doing to numb out? What is it that you do to not be present? What is it that you do to not feel? And for a lot of us, that's Internet and our phones. And there's food and there's, um, you know, watching stuff on the Internet or on television. And there's shopping and there's sex and blah, blah, blah. So addiction is huge. It's not just alcohol. Um, and so she said that. And I just went, oh, yes. And so we started a small group that was just a few of us at our house. And now we've actually found a center and we're getting a reputation in town for being a place where people come for emotional sobriety with any addiction that they want to address. And there's no one telling them that if you're, if you're not talking about alcohol, then you should go to a different meeting. And if you're not talking about that, then you should go to that. This is all encompassing and it's about coming and exploring being real and authentic in your life instead of trying to escape your life. And, you know, getting sober, getting clean for all of us, it doesn't mean that life is suddenly perfect. <laughs> it just means that now we're not numbing it out and we're not making some problems worse by not addressing them. We're actually walking through the problems and feeling them. And as hard as it is sometimes and as difficult it is, it's incredible. It's incredible to be fully present in one's life. Um, and so that was what made the difference for me was finding my tribe and creating this meeting that was around emotional sobriety. Um, and that is what has been my 
my home group and my place of growth. Um, and I, I wrote an article recently, and it's something that I believe um, really strongly, and I'll close with this, that to be clean and sober in this day and age is an act of rebellion. And I've heard, I heard a woman say that in a meeting once, and I thought, hell yes. When we look around at culture now and how it is just urging us to numb out, either with alcohol or with drugs or with internet or with porn or with whatever it is, we are surrounded with people that are addicts and with culture that is pushing addiction. And so to choose to address our addiction is an act of rebellion. And I feel so proud of being a rebel right now. And so I, um, I just really address it and I embrace it. And, um, and now I'm not hiding with my addiction anymore. I will tell everybody. And, um, and I, yeah, I'm proud to be a rebel. So that's me. I love it, Patty. I love your enthusiasm <laughs> and your positivity. Um, and I love the serendipity in your story that, um, that you were looking for a replacement for when 12 step didn't feel like a fit anymore and that it still ended up, it sounds like you're still, your recovery group is, is based on a 12 step model, but it's open to any ism. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. We're, we're, we're using the NA model, but we're saying all addictions. And, and the people in the room are basically, we've just got run the gamut of, of every addiction out there. There's porn and there's cannabis and there's um, meth, because meth is really a problem here in, in New Zealand. And, and of course, alcohol, which is, which is a drug. Um, some, some people in AA still argue against it, but it is. And so we follow the 12-step model, absolutely, but we embrace, you know, the, um, there's a wonderful book called Chasing the Scream. Have you read that, Jean? I have not, Chasing the Scream. Oh. It's so wonderful. Um, the, the, the author is Johan Hari, H-A-R-I. He's got a TED Talk that I really strongly recommend people watch, Johan Hari. And basically what he talks about in Chasing the Scream, the book, as well as in his talks, is that um, most addiction is caused by trauma. And when we go back and we're looking at our addiction, most of it is based in trauma at some place. And, and so we've got to address that trauma and then start that healing. Just saying, don't pick up and you'll be fine. In my opinion, and hey, I know 12-step works really well on the, you know, real rigid 12-step works really well for a lot of people. And I am in no way saying don't do it if it works for you. For me, that rigidity didn't work. And what I needed was to look at the trauma, was to get some therapy and to be able to look at my emotional sobriety in that larger sense. Um, and that's what we talk about in, in, the, um, in, the, in my home group. We still look at the addiction, but it's not saying just don't pick up and you'll be fine. It was like, ooh, you know, we talk bigger than that. So it's still 12-step, but on a, what seems to be, Gene, in, in my opinion, what seems to be a new model that's growing. I'm, I'm on, um, in a forum online um, with a wonderful guy that started it, and it's called The Recovery Revolution. His name is um, Omar, 
and he uh, he's in a 12-step program, but again, he's sort of looking at it in that larger sense. And with the recovery revolution, it's sort of that idea of, you know, let's get bigger. This doesn't have to be so rigid and so pedantic and so, um, you know, stuck in 1940s language. We can expand and yet still keep the, the culture of wanting to be clean and sober. I find that's a recurring thing, too, in a lot of the, the authors that you mentioned. Gabor Mate, who's Canadian. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> us Canadians, we have to claim that when someone <laughs> rises up to an international celebrity, we like to claim right. them. Um, but he, his work is very much grounded in addressing the trauma that lives within our body and is trying very hard to get out in different ways. And yes. um uh, I think that's so important. And I, I feel like the 12 steps does help you suss that out a little bit as you work on, as you work on, um, you know, resentments and addressing things in your past and bringing them forward. I think it helps to peel back the layers on trauma, but you're right in itself, the methodology of just uh, abstinence-based recovery, I think is is great. And I think it's you know, important. I think it's the way that we heal the best when we are free of using anything, um, even the things we don't use addictively. That's why I think it's so important to stay drug and alcohol free, even though I was never addicted to uh, marijuana and it's now legal in Canada. I still don't use it because I feel like I, I kind of know where that's probably going to take me and it's not going to help me get better the way I'm trying to get better. So yeah, um, me too. Me too. I'm, I'm abstinent. And I think it's really important, especially in early recovery that you are completely abstinent because with a lot of us addicts, we do overdo everything. I mean, we just do. And I, and I agree my, my husband, I was saying that, um, you know, he's not an addict in, in the sort of classic sense of drugs and alcohol, but there are some certain behaviors that that he does recurringly and I said you know what try the 12 steps and uh, and just see if you can if that works with you I'm not gonna I'm not gonna guide you in it I'm your wife and and that just won't work but, but look <laughs> at it um and I agree you know I talk about it all the time in meetings thank god we have the 12 steps because it's a great guide for life oh my god yeah learning how to keep my side of the street clean and letting you do what you have to do without (laughs) judging you and trying to control you and being your codependent and learning how to um you know daily meditation and prayer and constant contact my god what wonderful tools for life and community right yes Community yes. is huge. Yeah, I love that. Um, you you've, you said that you're the best version of Patty that you can be. Tell me about that. What does it feel like? What have you learned about yourself? What do you love about your life and yourself? Oh, what a you, you put tears in my eyes saying that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, what a lovely question. Um, well, the first thing I have to do is add an, an addendum. I'm not always the best version of myself. I'm often a bitch and, and not very nice to people and <clears throat> just not as often as I used to be. And I do, you know what the difference is, is that when I start to slip down that role of judging or codependence, I catch it and I make amends and I, I see it and it doesn't sit in my body anymore. But to answer your question directly is, 
what what I see as the best version of myself is a person that's in integrity with what I um, with what I believe I am with my um, with my values that I I put love first before judgment and that um, I journal when I'm uncomfortable with something and I try and figure out what what the basis of it is and that I'm um, you know I've done some somatic work and that I'm pretty in touch with my body and when I'm doing something that's even slightly out of integrity, I feel it almost immediately. And I can step back from it and say, Oof, this doesn't feel right. Even if I don't know exactly why, but I can step back and, and sort of check in with myself and being, being in integrity is so important to me that I absolutely want to be responsible. I absolutely want to be trustworthy. I want people to know if I'm going, if I say I'm going to do something, I, I am absolutely there. And that, um, you know, my kids who are um, almost 26, he'll be 26 soon, and my other son is 23, um, they still call me and, and talk to me often, even though they're living in the UK, and they still ask for advice, and, and they'll send their friends to me and talk about things. And to me, that is just such an incredible honor um, that that they see me as a person that is trustworthy and and um, and tell their friends that that I can listen and possibly help and that's the best version of me that I operate from love not fear that's it that's it that I'm operating from love not fear considering the childhood you had I feel like that is an enormous accomplishment in itself to come from a household that you describe as being so full of shame and secrets and then the traumatic divorce or, or, um, you know, breakup of your parents and then followed by the even more traumatic death of your mother, um, that, that you've healed to the point of being able to live from a place of love, not fear is, is really amazing. I mean, do you feel the enormity of that in your, in your awareness? Um, or does it just feel normal? You keep making me cry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. What what um what an affirmation. You know, I don't I don't um I don't think about that that much and you're right. It is absolutely huge and um and thank you for um acknowledging it and affirming it because um I I don't often give myself um credit for that and who thank you. Um it's taken so much work. <laughs> Um, I mean, first of all, first and foremost, what I had to do was I had to get clean and sober. You know, like what, what you were talking about, abstinence was the only thing that worked for me um, in the beginning. And what I found out was when I did go out drinking again is that um, it didn't take long for me to start uh, drinking in a very unhealthy way. So abstinence really is the only thing that works for me. But once I did um, get sober and got got more clear-headed, um, I, I found a, um, when I first got sober, like after, after about my first 90 days, I found someone that was recommended in the recovery community where I did a lot of therapy with, um, a therapist that was in recovery herself and did a lot of work around that for myself. And then I went to another therapist a little bit later and did more of my own deep trauma work. And then I was in, in, um, psychodrama groups and in therapy groups and one-on-one therapy for a lot of years. Um, 
to address all of the trauma because yeah it is traumatic and trauma is what you know we we step back from trauma that's how we protect ourselves and it's um a healthy thing you know when you're brought up in a traumatic household to step away from it so you're not as emotionally um immersed in it but when we step away what we're doing is stepping away from ourselves and so we have i i had to do a lot of therapy to reconnect with myself. Um, and one of the things that was hardest for me, and I'm still dealing with, to be honest, Jane, I'm still dealing with um, codependence. I, um, God, just the other, just the other day, I was um, <laughs> talking to my husband about something, and I said something so holier than thou. I mean, ugh, it makes me ill. But I said it so holier than thou, trying to take care of him. And he said, you know, I really hate it when you do that and you say this and this and this, you know, you've said it before and you're saying it there. And I had to stop right there because it had just happened. I heard it. I checked in with myself and my first reaction was resentment. And whenever my first reaction is resentment, that's where I've got to check it out. And with codependence, I just, um, it was, um, Annie Lamott that said a great quote about, um, the, the, it's a thin line between being good to someone and controlling someone. And then she said, get your good off of me. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's what I realized is I was trying to do this good to Jeff. And he was like, don't. And, and I resented him for saying that, like, I'm doing this for you. And so that's my clue that if I'm resenting him for not appreciating all that I'm doing for him, that's a great sign of, of codependence. And that was just, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So it's still around. Boy, I feel like but that's so, the big thing is it's, it's it. so ingrained in us for those of us that have experienced codependency. And I'm going to guess that that's, you know, 90% of the people that listen to this program, because it seems to be a precursor to alcohol addiction in particular, but um, isms of many kinds, but really one of the hallmarks of codependency and people pleasing and shape shifting and hustling for your worthiness is doing things you haven't been asked to do and then resenting that they aren't appreciated. Exactly. It's such a pattern. <laughs> it, yes. Oh, so easy to spot it in other people and um <laughs> exactly <laughs> um you mentioned somatic work i i'm not familiar with that term explain to me what that is oh it's it's wonderful jane and there's it's becoming a lot more popular now at least in new zealand um and i imagine it's even more popular in the states because everything comes late to us here um it's basically getting in touch with your body and and feeling feeling. And so, you know, so much therapy is, um, a, and I, I don't like to get gender specific, but it tends to be a bit gender biased. Men tend to think a lot. And I think this, and I think this, and, and are so in their head that they can't get into their feelings as much. And those of us that had trauma in our childhoods, when we step away from ourselves, a lot of us end up in our heads. So it's about getting back into our bodies and identifying where are, where, you know, it's like when I say I, I felt that resentment, I can tell you exactly where I felt it. It started in my chest and it closed up my throat. That's somatic work, feeling, feeling the feelings and then identifying them, uh, you know, figuring out where it sits in your body, actually doing some work around it. I mean, there's, there's motions that you can do. There's stroking, there's, there's, it's, it's, 
a big area, but the, the somatic just in itself means feeling. So it's about getting in touch. So with kind that. of connecting your body and mind or realizing where exactly. and that takes me back again to um, Gabor Mate's book, What the Body Remembers, I think is another one of his books. And it is about where, where we store yes. trauma in our body. Very interesting. I want to ask you, yeah. I have another yeah, question. Um, and here's a tissue warning. This one might make you cry. I'm going for a, <laughs> I'm going for a hat trick here. One <laughs> quote that seems to be coming up for me a lot these days, I think this might be the third episode in a row where I've used this quote, um, is uh, from Dr. Christiane Northrup, who says that when a woman heals herself, she heals for all the women who came before and all the women who will come after. And my dad passed away a couple of years ago. And we had a difficult relationship at times. And what I've experienced, interestingly, is that my relationship with him continues to mature, even though he's not with us anymore, that it's changed. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like I have an evolving relationship with his memory. And so I'm wondering Mm -hmm. about your relationship with your mom and how your recovery has impacted her memory and her place in your heart and your understanding of her as a person. Yeah. Okay. Well, you got your, you you got your bloody hat trick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Um, I should have kept tissues right close. I didn't realize this was going to be a tear jerking interview. Um, Absolutely. And I love, I love that quote from Christine Northrup. I mean, she's so amazing. She's just, oh, for any, any of your listeners, yeah, out there, I hope you're writing down some of these books because these are all gems. Um, yeah. And I've, I've heard that I, I've read that from her and also that, that the healing that we do go back, it goes back generations and goes forward generations. And that, um, yeah, we're, we're healing forward. We're paying forward by, by doing our own healing and our own work, which is such a gift. And I see it in my sons. Um, but your question about my mom, absolutely. Oh my God. Yes. Um, so impactful. And I love the way that you put it, that your relationship is maturing and that, um, I I hadn't thought of it that way. And yet I do, I do see that. Um, I, there's so many times where I wish that she was alive so I could talk to her now, um, as, as a mother, but, um, that, that's separate just in terms of, of, you know, I, I, I sort of dance between two squares. One of the squares is, damn, I wish she had found recovery because she really, really was such a cool woman. She was, um, you know, in her defense, she was living a life she shouldn't have been living. She was a brilliant woman, um, graduated um, magna cum laude from UC Berkeley in days when most women weren't going to university. She was a translator at the ports of San Francisco. She spoke seven languages, but she was a good Italian Catholic she married a good um, Irish Catholic boy and who told her to stay home and make babies, basically. And she was not happy. And um, her, she was incredibly depressed. She had depression, alcohol. Um, alcohol and depression is a pretty fatal dance. Um, but 
had she gotten sober, I, you know, she just, she, I just wish she could have seen what life could have been. Um, that, that would have been so amazing. Um, but again, that's not answering your question. Yes, my relationship with her has absolutely matured. And there's sometimes when I'm journaling where I'm specifically talking to my mom. Mm -hmm. And you can hear my American accent. I was born and raised in California. And when I talk about my mother, I usually say my mom. Um, whereas back here in New Zealand, they're mums. So I, I, it depends on which, where I am in my, in my life that my accent changes. Um, yeah, where I'll journal and I'll write to her. And I, you know, I can still, when I'm doing meditations, I can hear the advice that I think that she would give. And, um, and I, I have a good friend that's here in, in, uh, New Zealand, that's a psychic. And she said, oh, my God, your mother's right next to you. She just is always yeah. next to you. And, and, and I feel that. I really feel that. And, um, you know, it was, for whatever reason, it was the path that she chose, chose slash was given, I, whatever. Um, and um, that's not who she is in that largest spiritual sense. I mean, I think we all know that. And so that, that mother that that's near me and that I, I feel so close to now. Yeah. Is, is her, is her true essence. Mm -hmm. And as I said, yeah, sometimes when I'm writing in my journal, I can, I can feel her and I can feel like I'm talking to her. And as a woman, um, I would just love to be able to just be with her, um, in, in the flesh, but, um, in, in the spirit, I, I do, I feel very close to her. So that's, that's very accurate. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, um, my apologies for, <laughs> for, um, taking you there, but I, I appreciate your willingness to talk about that because I think grief is, it's one of the things that, uh, can either kickstart an addictive pattern or kickstart a relapse. And um, the pain is just so great around grief and um, especially with a parent where there has been a difficult relationship. So I find your message there to be really a message of hope and of, of kindness. So thank you for talking about that. I want to ask you now about your book, This Way Up. It's it's kind of a, it's a mashup. It's part fiction and part coursework. So tell us a bit about this book. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I started, actually, the, the story about how I started writing the book is, is pretty cool. So I'll just digress for a moment and tell you that. I was, um, it was when my son was 13, so um, 13 years ago, um, we were in Auckland, which is the big city um, not too far from us, and he was at the orthodontist, and then afterwards our treat together was to go to Borders Bookstore, sit in the coffee shop, and get books. And I was running workshops for teenagers um, around self-esteem, and I'd always get books, and I'd get quotes and things. And I, and I read out, he was reading one of the books that he was reading, and um, I read out a quote that I really liked. And he looked at me in the eye, and he put his hand on the book, and he said, Mom, when are you going to stop reading other people's books and write your own? You've been telling me this stuff for years. And I went, Phew. And I went home that day and started writing this way up. And um, it took 10 years <laughs> to actually write and get published. It, I started in 2006, and it was published in 2016. But I got there. Um, what I wanted to do with it was I wanted to write a narrative that was not my story, although 
now that you've heard my story and you've and you've read the book, you can, you can see there's a lot of me in there. But I wanted it to be a narrative, and I wanted it to be not a self help book like I'm telling you what to do because I I can't tell you what to do. Um, but I wanted to have sort of a spiritual connection without it being me telling you. So thus I created the, um, the sort of guide in the protagonist dreams, Gaia, who comes to her and gives her messages. I was influenced by books like The Way of the Peaceful Warrior and Jonathan Livingston Seagull that, were, that, that gave bits of wisdom with, um, through a narrative without it being a self-helpy book. But then as I was writing it, and I had one of my first readers read it. She said, you know, I really want to be doing some of this work myself. And that's what launched the idea of them, the journaling workbook as the second half. So um, my publisher, who's a, a, a small publishing house, a small feminist public publishing house in the States called She Writes Press. She, um, my, my editor said, you know, I think that um, we can combine the two and we'll just call it a hybrid. So that's what my book is. It's a hybrid and it's um, half narrative. And then the second half is a journaling workbook that follows the, um, the protagonist's journey. So as the protagonist journeys through her own learning and her own healing, there's journaling for the um, reader to progress with, with the protagonist. Fantastic. You were talking about earlier about how recovery is in a shift and how we're moving towards this really self-directed, empowered era of recovery that is less about, you know, the walk of shame to a 12-step meeting in a church basement and more about living wholeheartedly and living out loud. Talk a little bit more about that and how that influenced the book that you're writing now. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, it's, um, I feel like it's, we're really in a transition in, um, in recovery. Um, I mean, if you look, if you look online in different, um, different forums on Facebook forums and in on, on other online forums, there are so many sober forums and they're not all 12 step based. And even the ones that are 12 step based are looser, are wider, um, you know, it's sort of like alcohol-free, you know, hashtag AF. Alcohol-free is, is becoming a lot more normalized. And there are all of these pubs and bars opening up all over the world that are sober, that are places where alcohol is not served, that people are choosing alcohol-free and sober lifestyles just because they don't want the toxicity of the drinking culture. And uh, to me, that's just awesome. I mean, I am in no way judging anyone any way that they can make it work you know if, if strict strict adhesive you know um sticking to um the big book works awesome that is awesome however if the big book and some of that more antiquated language doesn't work i i love the fact that we are expanding and like i said people are calling it the recovery revolution and people are you know using hashtags about you know sober and free and about alcohol free and about sober lifestyle and People are looking at ways of finding community. You know, you mentioned that earlier, and I think that's so important. Finding community 
where you don't have to numb out to be a part of it, where you don't have to go and just get blotto and black out to be having quote unquote fun. And, and people are exploring that more. And I, and I love the fact that, you know, that, that the millennials are really leading the charge and saying, you know, let's look at, 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 other ways. Let's look at alternatives. Um, and that just gives me such hope. And like I told you, a lot more people are talking about choosing to be alcohol-free as a rebellion, you know, that it's rebellious. And a friend of mine who, who works with, um, she, she's in recovery with me, and she works with um, students that come over from the U.S. and are studying, studying the Maori way of life, Maori being the indigenous people here in New Zealand. And what she talks about is, um, you know, they talk about the Maori healing and the Maori um, culture of different ways of doing it. And when the students say, well, can we go out and go drinking tonight? She said, of course you can if you want to, but they're staying on a marae, which is um, a, a, a sort of a community of Maori. And she said, you can, but I want you to think about something. You're here studying the indigenous people. And when you think about your own indigenous people being the Native Americans or the indigenous people of Australia being the Aborigines, it was the colonizer's way of absolutely subjugating the people. They used alcohol. They used alcohol when they came here and just poured it out to the Maori. They used it to the Aborigines in um, in Australia, and they did it to the Native Americans in the U.S. And I want you to be thinking about that subjugation, about that colonization, as you're going out and drinking when you're staying on a marae. And she said, it is so hard-hitting, because it's something that people don't think about a lot. So... Um, I don't even know why I got off on that tangent. Sorry. Anyway, but what I love is just the fact that people are looking at different ways of being, um, of different relationships with alcohol and that it's expanding and that 12 step, I think has lost a lot of its stigma, but now there's alternatives to 12 step that are still about being alcohol free. And it's about finding your tribe, finding your comfort and being able to be real in that space. Fantastic. And this has led you then to write another book. I believe the working title is Recovery Road Trip. Can you tell us a little bit about this or is it under wraps for now? Uh, it's not under wraps at all. I, I'm starting. The fact that it took me 10 years to get this way up written and out could mean a while. I've just started it in the last few months. Um, I, I sat after writing um, this way up. I was so excited and I felt like, yay, I'm done. I got it out. I got a publisher. It was a long trip. Finally got the publisher. And then the marketing of the book is so intense. I had no idea that marketing your your own work um, was going to be such a huge piece of it. It was like writing the book was a piece of cake. So um, I really was shell-shocked after the amount of work that was involved with that. So I really sat back after a while. and But this book kept coming in. I love Ju the way that Julia Cameron puts it. She says she does a meditation and then she, um, and then she follows the marching orders. And so in my meditation, I was giving these marching orders and, uh, it, you know, it just kept downloading and I was like, okay. <laughs> so I started writing it and the way that I start writing is just on big paper and just lots of color and just sort of taking notes and getting the ideas out. And what I wanted was to actually be following this idea of, um, of 
sort of this new generation of of sobriety that it's not just around 12 step rooms that there's a lot of ways that people are communicating and so um, I pictured having a recovery road trip. So t doing a trip across the U.S. road trip and meeting people along the way, either in meetings or outside of meetings, and learning important, valuable advice along the way, shall we say. Um, not really advice, getting, getting gems along the way and, and taking them to heart. And then the protagonist, as she goes, sort of takes them in and, and, and plays with them in her life. And so um, it will be very, my, my target audience will absolutely be um, women in recovery, but um, it, it's bigger than that and hopefully will speak to men in recovery too and, um, and hopefully to people just looking for ideas with that. And I'm guessing it'll be a similar format again, that hybrid, because um, there's a lot of, of of juice and work that I see as, as it's coming out. And I'd like people to be able to work with it rather than just read it. And a lot of people, if they're guided journaling, um, they feel more comfortable. How can our listeners who are now no doubt very enthusiastic about learning more about you and finding your books and following your work, where can they find you and how can they get your books? Thank you. Um, well, I am on um, I'm on Facebook, Patty Clark This Way Up, um, and that's that's my um, author page. I also have an author page, This Way Up, on Instagram and This Way Up on um, on Twitter. Um, my website is thiswayupbook.com, and I have a blog site which is pattyclark.org, um, where I post a lot of my journals, uh, a lot of my uh, writing. I write a lot of articles for um, for different journals. Uh, Ariana Huffington has a fabulous um, online journal called Thrive Global, and I'm a regular um, writer for her. And um, then also in, in yeah different different online journals and things. But yeah, if you if you follow me on this way up. Uh, on thiswayupbook.com. That's where a lot of the Fantastic. Are. And listeners, when you're searching for Patty, it's Patty with an I, P-A-T-T-I-C-L-A-R-K. Well, it has been so delightful to talk to you today and finally get to hear your voice in person and just hear, I love your enthusiasm and your passion for life and your caring for others. Just comes through in everything that you share. So thank you so much for taking the time today to be here on the Bubble Hour. Oh, thank you so much, Jean. I've just, I've been a fan for a long time. And so being able to actually be on the podcast is a real honor for me. And, um, and I just, I just love, love what you say. And I love, I love the work you do and I love Unpickled and your writing. And, um, I really feel like we're kindred spirits, you know, we talk about the same books and we've got a very similar ethos. We do, feels. except for the fact that you're a world traveler. I just find that fascinating. And I think <laughs> I'll have to have you come back and we'll do a whole nother hour just talking about what recovery looks like all around the world, because it sounds like you've hit most of it. So... <laughs>
<laughs> it's it's been really delightful to share with you today and thank you for all your kind words thanks for your energy and your your kind thoughts for all of our listeners the great resources and everything um listeners i will make sure and put patty's links in the show notes as well so it's been a great hour talking with you. I've learned so much. I appreciate it so much. Listeners, you can reach Patty through her website, thiswayupbook.com, or at the links that she mentioned. You can also email thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will happily forward your message on to Patty as well. So that's it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies to hide With me you're strong Cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see old I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free Just want to be free from the power of the